0: You, you your first instinct because you're a manager in the team before is to like try and fix it the thing this the very specific thing mm-hmm. um but what i've had to realize over time is that you need to take us yes of course you can say something or whatever but you need to step back
1: hi i'm jason Evanish, ceo of lighthouse and this is the creating high performing teams podcast we aim to be the most actionable podcast on leadership and management you'll hear and today we have an awesome guest we have jeremy brown who is a longtime cto with an incredibly diverse background he started his career as a software engineer and then went into the software solutions consultant side of things doing some sales uh, before spending time in pre-sales engineering and sales in general he's now come full circle returning to engineering and building products He loves to build products and believes that as a CTO, his product is the people and the systems they operate in. If you can create the right environment, then those people will create amazing products that people will love. As you can imagine, that statement is exactly why we wanted to have Jeremy on the podcast today. So we're going to be talking about that journey for him from being a team lead and a, and a solo engineer and getting in sales all the way to becoming a CTO. Rising in those layers is one of the most common questions we hear from managers. So we're looking forward to hearing some of his career reflections. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks Jason. It's um, super great to be on your podcast.
1: Awesome. So. I think the, the first and most interesting question we find we ask a lot of our guests is, you know, what got you into leadership and management? What made you what made you interested in it?
0: It's a really good question. I don't think I, I plan my life like this, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but there was definitely, I don't know, a, a, a combination of of desire, um, a lot of a lot of it feels like it always felt like luck in a moment of like how things worked out. Um and and I think um my own personal growth that kind of led me um step by step uh as well. Um I think like the first experience I had of of, of leadership was, was before the world of work. Um mm-hmm. actually at university I got involved in 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 a couple of different uh, clubs and societies, mm-hmm. um, I actually did rowing at university, and uh, um, I was also in, in the Christian Union. And at one point, uh, I was both chairman of the Christian Union and uh, captain of the rowing club at, at the same time. Um, so yeah, I just like it. Just it, sometimes it just happens, um, you know. Like you, you're like in your in your uh, in your like second year, and suddenly you get voted into these things. Totally. <laughs> But but that was the beginning for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: great. Uh, I I had a similar experience when I was in college. I uh, my senior year, I ended up. Um, I was an electrical engineer, and um, I'd been involved some other clubs, but in the engineering uh, group, there was uh, something called Ada Kappa New, which was the honor society. And the last person who ran the group uh, basically did nothing. And so, like, there there he he randomly emailed me, being like, "Hey, JC, you want to be involved in it next year?" and I was like sure and he's like congratulations you're president and I was like what <laughs> and so I had to I had to learn how to rebuild the organization from scratch and you know work with different departments and stuff and that was actually like my first real attempt at like leading an organization where I was the head of the group and that that was a really formative experience for me so I'm curious with your experience being captain of the rowing club at the same time as chairman of the Christian Union like were there any like particularly formative uh, experiences for you where, where something happened that like taught you either, this is the right way to do leadership. Or I know when I tried to do things the first time in some of these clubs, uh, I learned what not to do as well from like trying to do it the wrong way. So I'm curious if you have any, any story you could share of maybe an experience of something that really, really worked or that you are like, Oh, I shouldn't do mm-hmm. it that way.
0: Yeah. It, it's funny, by the way. Just uh, how did I get ends up being caps of the rowing club? I, I took two years out between like finishing my my school and and university, and so I was the, one of the older ones. Uh-huh. And so, at the beginning, it was for my driving license because I used to drive the um the, the the four by four that we used to tow our boats <laughs> to the races. <laughs> nice. And then, and then uh, well, I mean, I was I was in also in the in the in the first crew and stuff. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of partly how I ended up in 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 the position. But um, honestly the the those experiences they 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 taught me a lot they they, i I think like university is such a safe place to develop and grow absolutely um you know like you you can like mess up and it's it's not so bad and um societies are great for that if you if you get involved Mm -hmm. um some of the lessons i learned were things like in in a rowing club how do you deal with like someone who's not performing well Mm -hmm. someone that you really like but uh you know it's it's like rowing is very numbers based, you know, you you can like tell, we do like rowing tests, like 2K and 5K tests, and you know, like, you know, how people are, how much people are pulling in the boat. And um, I learned a lot from that. And also, like, what do you do when you have two people that are like doing really like the same? um and how do you choose between those people to to have in a boat that has limited seats there's not you can't create an extra seat in, in the boat um so yeah things like that um sure. and and then the, i think the other thing i learned a lot um especially in 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 the, in the christian union because it, it it's kind of a, d- a different society you Yeah, know? different not as competitive. Different values. <laughs> no quite the opposite um <laughs> no in fact um, and, and I started to learn that like, I could see the difference in the values of these two groups of people that, and, and what brought them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to understand that uh, shared values is also really important um, for, for an organization. So yeah, that, that's, that was those were some of the, the early experiences of, of, of leadership, I think, that where I, I started to learn and, and um, exercise in safe, safe places my, my leadership.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think uh, for very young listeners uh, or older listeners who are about to have have their kids go off to Mm -hmm. college, I think this is something to really encourage them. Like, I know I learned this kind of the hard way starting my career where in Mm -hmm. college, you can take on leadership opportunities all the time because you're just leading your peers. But the second you enter the workforce, you are literally lowest person on the totem pole. And so like your odds of leading anything when you're like 23, 24 years old is very, very slim. And so Mm -hmm. there's a major window of opportunity uh to to learn some basic leadership skills in a much safer environment uh in a in a much more forgiving environment maybe uh in college that literally is much harder and doesn't really exist outside of that unless maybe you start a company right after college but then that's really a baptism by fire so uh, I really encourage uh, anybody listening here, whether they're going to college soon or in college now to take advantage of that, or if you have kids heading off to college, which I know is very common for a lot of the leaders listening to this. If you have kids in that age group, really encourage them to do it because it is an opportunity that like, you won't get you can't make up for it in your mid 20s, or it's much more painful to learn it, learn it, uh, you know, on the job there. Yeah,
0: no, nobody's going to give you a massive budget <laughs> <I know. laughs> at that age, typically, exactly, <laughs> and, and it's actually it's it, it's really strange i you know um i i went to university because i i i always knew i was going to be an engineer um and i i i did my degree to get a piece of paper mm-hmm. uh to to be able to like access the jobs um <laughs> that i wanted to do yeah but the most valuable experiences I got was not like the, the degree, but actually those those experiences um, the, the friendships and, and the, mm-hmm. the learning from from being in that kind of an environment. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think like if you go to university and you don't get involved in those societies and things that you're passionate about, you're missing a, a great opportunity.
1: Absolutely. And so mm-hmm. so after university, then, um, as I understand, you started started working on smartphones. And so can you talk a little bit about how you jumped into kind of the technical world and, and, and how, how that maybe kind of laid the foundation for some of the stuff you did later on?
0: Yeah, I guess like, uh, um, in your last year, like I suddenly realized I need to find a job <laughs> and, um, I, I, had been, I had been sponsored through my degree by, by a company in, in Northern Ireland where, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And, um, I realized I didn't want to go back to Northern (laughs) Ireland and I wanted to stay. (laughs) And uh, so I was like, oh, I really, there was a bit of a scramble and um, I landed this job uh, in in Manchester where I went to university Uh, and it was like a fairly low level coding job and I I loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, you know, I just started out like basically in a small little, um, you know, six person team with a really good manager and like a tech lead that was like the classic super bearded guru guy and, <laughs> yeah. and I, I really learned uh so much uh, you know on a technical level and it was you know it was I'd already worked um it, you know during my, my degree with this other company but it was it was it was different when you're when you're actually a, a software engineer and you're you're recognized as that. Um, and then I suddenly realized, oh, you know, I really like this technical stuff, but I'm missing the people side, you know mm-hmm used to go to the office and, and spend like three three hours. I think this is before Slack and all those things, right? Sure. But I used to spend three hours just like not talking to people and like coding and yeah. <laughs> things like that. I think work is a little bit different now. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to work with people. So that's kind of, I started... Um, I built out a training course for Symbian, mm-hmm. uh, Symbian OS was the operating system that we were working on. We were a subcontractor for Nokia. And then I realized I had a friend who worked at Accenture and he told me about consulting and how they work. And I was like, oh, okay, that that's that's more like what I want to do. I want to like, I want to, to interface with people and understand business needs and, and so on uh, at, a, at a closer, higher level than of abstraction. And um so that's kind of that's kind of like my first bit my the first trajectory of my job was just realizing that I wanted to work with people as well as like coding
1: sure and so did that mean was Accenture something your next your next role at accenture was that something that you you planned for did that kind of fall on your lap somehow, or were you very intentional yeah, so about choosing to go there
0: it it was it it so it is really interesting because um you go through the graduate rounds of looking at different places. And um, Accenture at the time was really early in the day, and they had like thousands of people applying for like a couple hundred graduate jobs, mm-hmm. and it felt like impossible. And I didn't apply for it because I thought I'll, I'll never get it. And then my friend who had who 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 got in, he'd done like a an internship with them. Mm-hmm. He recommended me, and just like that, I, I got the I got I got the job. So. Nice. Um, and yeah, but I think like I even gra- in, in you know graduating it would have been the kind of job I would have maybe sought out but you know like sometimes it just feels so unattainable when you're in you know just as a graduate looking for these things so, was the was, yeah it was kind of lucky one of those lucky moves yeah
1: was was your friend who got in were they from the the crew team or the uh, uh the Christian Christian organization
0: Actually, uh, my mate Brian. Um, we were in halls together. Oh, nice! And I got him into the rowing club. Okay, there you go. <laughs> uh, he, came, he became he, because of me. He actually rode. and then yeah, we've been we're still really good friends uh, today. Very cool. So friendships, <laughs> they they do work. as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great story.
1: Um, yeah. Um. And, and so, like, how did you go from uh, Accenture to, uh. I guess you went on a sabbatical to Africa to becoming to becoming starting to get into leadership that seemed, uh, you know that that's, mm. that's definitely like I, I think a lot of people find it interesting the circuitous path that people take to end up where they are so I'm curious how did you how did you go from Accenture to Africa to being a leader
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so this is like the bit where I said like life is full of like kind of chance moments or lucky moments, and I think it's partially also about following what you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. And you know i I by the, what what happened was I had really amazing experience at Accenture they invest a lot in the in their staff that and I did like these um really long immersive training courses in the u s where they flew flew us out there and it was like i I just grew a lot in in terms of technical leadership mm-hmm. and um and I I realized I wanted to take a break. You know, I'd, I'd come out of university and I just wanted to take some time to go traveling. And so the, after five years, they allow you to take a sabbatical. So I, I said, okay, well, this is my dream. I want to go across Africa on a motorbike. And um, so I took this sabbatical. And <laughs> one year after I, I we left London going for Cape Town, we actually are only after one year arrived in, in Cameroon, which is about halfway down. Mm-hmm. And, um, my, my buddy's, uh, motorbike broke down and, um, we needed to wait for a spare part from Europe and <laughs> in that six week period that we had to wait for the spare part, we started a company. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So that was actually like a, a different leadership experience because, um, first it was just the two of us doing consulting and then, uh, we started to build a little business. We hired, hired a, a few staff mm-hmm. and, um, we basically created um, a co-working space in our office. And in that co-working space, we tried to have young Cameroonians who were trying to start their own um, tech businesses, online tech businesses. Mm-hmm. And we created uh, Cameroon's first startup incubator. That's awesome. And uh, we partnered with companies like Google and others to, to run some events and things like that. So I think that was an interesting one. I think like the, the really interesting experience there was, uh, Cameron's like a very colourful place. Uh, The the business environment is very colourful. Sure. (laughs) Um, Getting people to pay you at times is difficult. And there's like some of these moments where I remember uh, having to you know, maybe take a step back. We we went like we said, let's do like a really great hiring program. So we went to the top universities and we we managed to pick these amazing young guys to work with us. And so we had like an office with like three or four really great guys working with us. Mm-hmm. And and then one of our big customers that we like you never have one customer you rely on. <laughs> and this one big customer <laughs> yeah, yeah. didn't pay us and then didn't pay us. And we were like, Having to pay the bills and then watching our like our, our cash situation drop, and I, I, that that's like one of those moments that will stick with me for life is like not having enough money, knowing you have to pay salaries at the end of the month. So yeah, that that I, I learned you learn a lot from that. You learn a lot from having people that you know. And we had like one staff member who cheated us, and we discovered we had to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it was like so that was like I think my first world of work real um uh, leadership responsibility moment where p- you realize people and their families are relying on you yeah um uh, it's pretty scary yeah when you start companies
1: so, i think that's one of the things people underrate is you it it just it hits different uh being honest yeah. having been a startup employee and having been a startup founder when you're the founder and you're the one looking at the bank account, and you realize it's on you to to take care of your team. It's it's a different kind of pressure. It definitely gave me more empathy mm-hmm. that I wish I had, had earlier in my career for uh, my other my other bosses and stuff. Because I, you know, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't think you really know until you're the man on the wire, instead of seeing someone else on the wire.
0: No, you you can't it's not something you can learn (laughs) you have to experience it yeah
1: yeah you can't be told you just have to feel you just have to feel that special pit in your stomach um yes so 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 okay so you have this uh so actually i'm curious now so you're in cameroon you're waiting for a motorcycle part and you run a co-working space and now like people aren't paying their bills and you get hustled out of money like how did you guys get out of this like like did the part just arrive and you guys were like, hmm, "Great time for us to leave"? Or like, what? How did you resolve all that happening in however, however long you were you were hanging out there?
0: So we 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 ended up living there for two years. Oh wow! Okay, um, so it's a long run. So yeah. so the six weeks was just uh, by the by the by the end of six weeks we'd already, already made our first couple thousand euros doing some yeah. consulting with a a mad English guy who got us to help him out with his business sure. and then introduced us to a bunch of other people. So it was like just a. The, the beginning of it but um yeah i like that two years honestly it it's like you know it, people talk about dog years and how dog years like worth yeah, like yeah, seven yeah. years of like a human life but that was that that the whole experience was really like that um i think like uh how did we get out of it um towards the end uh cameron has these ups and downs i think and uh politically and all the rest i mean it it's it, w- there were things that happened around us uh, that just kind of started to make us feel this might be the end and mm-hmm. this one big particular customer that that owed us a lot of money um, we, we we felt like, okay, we're gonna have to take a call here because um, we're gonna run out of cash like our own <laughs> savings. We started putting our savings into the business and we realized that's not a good thing. Yeah, that's dangerous. And so yeah so my buddy Keith actually went came back to to Europe first. Uh, he, he, he got a contract. He said, look, I'll, we'll, we'll buy some time to see if we can get paid. Cause that money will definitely get us out of the hole that we're in. And, uh, so he, he came back, he realized it wasn't happening. Uh, we realized it wasn't happening. So then we started to shut up shop and wind down the business. Um, some of the things that still we carry with, uh, us is, you know, it was never about for us to, to make money for ourselves. Like we'd been traveling through Africa and seeing these schools and, Buildings and projects that had been built with 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 aid money mm-hmm. and seeing basically what was left was a derelict building and a sign where it was like you know had moss on it and uh and you know, like a moldy sign or you know peeling paint on a wall of a sign and we we felt like that the, the, these projects don't really make any long term difference and what we wanted to do was we felt business is the way forward, giving people the means to earn their own money and so I think like for us the lasting testament to what, like the time we spent there was not ever it was never intended to be you know our business it was more could we get and help some of these Cameroonian folks have a lasting business for themselves and like definitely a couple of them have had that and I think that's like the thing that we we leave behind that that we care about um, when I look back it's not you know it it's the the way that we were able to touch other people's lives um and where they've gone since then
1: that's awesome uh, that's a great yeah. story so when you left there did you finish the did you actually end up finishing the trip or at that point were you guys fried and like headed
0: <laughs> back to europe my motorbike is still waiting for me there i don't <laughs> know what state it's in That's awesome. <laughs> it's it's always my life backup plan okay um there's a guy that look, has it in a garage <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> who knows yeah Cool. So okay, so you came maybe, back to Europe. Maybe one day when my son has grown up I'll be able to do it. There
1: you go. Or maybe you can gift it to him.
0: Mm. <laughs> yes. So
1: so okay, so you, so you, you finished that amazing two two year journey, your mm. trial by fire of starting a company mm. plus plus the you know, just the journey of seeing a different part of the world. And you come back mm. to Europe now and you get get into pre sales. So so, so how, how, how did you end up going on that leap? So you go to Accenture and then you use some consulting mm-hmm. and build this little business in Cameroon for a couple of years. Now you're coming back and you decide to get into like sales engineering.
0: Yeah, it, it, honestly, uh, I, it's another one of the things that, those things that are not planned. Um, I came back. And, and I started, uh, I, I thought, we let's, I need, I want to start my own business again. And that's what I want to do. I, I had this taste for it. And I thought, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, okay, uh, I'll put out my CV to do some contract work. Mm-hmm. And um uh, my buddy, Keith, who who I had been with, working in Cameroon with, and he he had been contracting at Red Hat and he put in my CV mm-hmm. and they went, oh, great. Another good profile of someone you know. Yep. And um, I did this interview and they were like, I don't think you should be doing consulting with us. I think you should be doing pre-sales engineering. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it just happens we have a, a new opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how it happened. That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: cool. And then and, I guess that team grew, and then you started mani- managing uh, a
0: pre-sales team, correct? Yeah, kind of. Uh, you know, so look for companies. I always say look for companies where, that are growing, yep. that are dynamic, because there's far more growth opportunities for you there. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you're kind of in like a dead man's shoes situation. <laughs> where, you know, you, you, your your manager has to leave or do something for you to like go up, like in like a, kind of like stodgy companies. Yeah, um, I think thankfully in tech we don't have this problem of dead men's shoes too much because yeah. growth is everywhere in tech uh, today and certainly when i started my career it didn't feel like that but it, it is definitely things are, are different now mm-hmm. and, and red hat was going through this massive growth my um, manager at the time was managing uh, i think something like 20 consultants and <laughs> um and then eight of us on the pre-sale side and it just was just too much and um i think like uh, I stuck my hat in the in the in the ring for it when they said they were going to look for someone to manage the team, mm-hmm. and uh, none of none of my other colleagues were were crazy enough to want to do it. They were all, I think, a little bit uh, older and wiser. Um, <laughs> to, like I want to be an individual contributor. I don't want any of that management stuff. That's way too complicated dealing with <laughs> with people. Yeah. And and so that's how I ended up uh, doing it. And it was really interesting, right? Because um, the 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 region that i was part of was uk and ireland plus eastern europe but we managed everything out of out of the uk and then we needed to start a team in eastern europe and we needed to start a team in in russia so i kind of just got to build out these extra teams all over the place and uh, it was it was amazing yeah
1: very cool and then uh, i guess from there uh you ended up heading back more towards the engineering path and that that's kind of led to you to now you've been cto a couple
0: places right yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I, this it's been a bit like I, I, I actually um, have bounced a bit between. Uh, I, I went actually back from that manager uh, position where the team got really big and I was starting to have to be a, kind of almost a manager of managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went back to being an individual con- in- contributor and then back to being a manager because I bounced in and out in a few different roles. But um, actually kind of like one, one of the impetuses for me to Come kind of full circle back to engineering was um, to kind of cut out a lot of the uh, uh, the history of, of what I what I've done was um, there, I think there were like a couple drivers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, w- one was definitely like personal and logistical, which is um, I had been working in a very commercial context. Um, for quite a long time, and and sales and commercial context, you you travel, you see customers, you're on the road a lot. And um, I, I live in France now. And uh, at the time when I first moved here, I was English, an English speaker only. I didn't speak French, so I couldn't work in French companies. So I ended up traveling out of here every 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 week, <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And so, like, practically, I was looking like, okay, we had a we had a baby, uh, and I was looking, how do I. Travel a little bit less. I need to be around at home more, mm-hmm. and the other part for me was, um, I think you know, I got I got headhunted for a CTO role, and it just like excited me so much because it was like if you'd asked me at the beginning of my career what I wanted to be, it would have been I would have said CTO. You know, that's that's great. It's absolutely what I wanted to do, and so like, yeah, and 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 I learned so much in those other uh, roles that I felt I was ready uh, to be a what I hope is a good CTO in, in wherever I work
1: that's great so was it hard to move away from being an engineer every day like what do you what do you miss most about it
0: you know like the first time I I I so when I kind of became a manager I I um, I was a player manager so I never let go of it fully and, and it's actually a really dangerous place to be yes and then um, the other thing I didn't I didn't like when you're at the beginning of this, when you first do it, you don't sometimes realize that there is a, you've basically just changed your job, like your career, yes. <laughs> you're you're doing something completely different. And I didn't, I guess, bumbled my way through that. I, I didn't, I didn't realize it. And then over time I started to realize that. Um, so I think like, was it hard the first time? Um, no, but like it was hard the second time yeah. to go from an IC back to a manager because I knew more what I was getting myself into.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what do maybe you not miss about being an engineer? Like are there parts of the job that you're like, man, I'm kind of glad I don't have to do that anymore.
0: <laughs> I think I, I think part of part of what I, why I, I wanted to, to, to be in, in more of a leadership position is because I felt I had like strong opinions about how things could be yeah and I do think that as a as a, as a manager uh, you can influence that more um, and and I, I definitely remember early stage in uh, in, in my career um, wasn't really able to control that you know like it was like I, I had like I've had good and bad managers and uh, the good managers have made my Made everything so much better and different, mm-hmm. and the bad managers, I just wanted to get away. And I think maybe that's the the that as part of what has motivated me is that like just this drive to make a better environment for people. And um, ICs can do that, uh, individual contributors can do that, but I think uh, and the more senior they are, the more they can influence that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I just I just felt like I could put my money where my mouth is on what I felt how I felt things could be run. Um, That's, that's what I don't miss. It's like the feeling of not being able to influence it. Yeah. I miss lots. I miss lots of things about being an engineer too, but that I don't miss so much. I think when I look back.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the pre-slack world where you could sit down and maybe think just for three hours about your code, um, Mm. uh, you know, maybe, maybe can you, can you expand a little bit on that? Like how is flow state different as a manager versus an individual contributor?
0: Um, I think Paul Graham talks about the maker schedule and the manager schedule, yep. and um, I miss this kind of you, you. You can, as a developer, as writing code, you have these little tight feedback loops. Mm-hmm. Um, you you make little changes, you see your code, you build your code, you run it, mm-hmm. um, you incrementally build it, you refactor it. It's it's like it's it's kind of like. Um, <laughs> If you're addicted to to social media on your phone or something, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but you're, it's 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 deeper than that. Um, you you have to be creative, you have to think in a different way about your your problems, and sometimes you have to, you know, like get away from it, come back to it, and uh, you do have those shower moments, and it's it's very like it's just I think there's like um the feedback loop is really tight, and and even sometimes even if you're stuck on problems, which is you know, like everyone's probably known, like a situation where you're trying to debug something and, and you spend days yeah. on this thing that's blocked. You that's the other thing I don't miss. Yeah. Um, but um, with people, that debug problem where you're stuck for days or weeks is like what you're perpetually stuck with. Um, with people, it's so um, I miss that a little bit. Uh, that that flow state. Um, mm-hmm. As a, as a manager, you can sometimes have that flow state in the meetings that you have with people, mm-hmm. but um, it's not the same. Um, you you're much more you're you're constantly uh, constantly um, context switching. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you have to carve out time not to do that, but it's it's. Um, yeah, it's it's just a, it's very stressful. I, I think I'm used to it now, or maybe I'm in a bad place. <laughs> I don't know too much context switching, um, but um, I miss that, and and um, you have a different different loop now in in a, as a, as a leader, and it gets slower the the more senior you get. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what is the feedback
1: loop like as a leader?
0: Mm. I think um your feedback loop becomes more about like the change you see in people and and the work environment that you're able to create. And, um, obviously like as a manager and then a manager of managers, um, as you kind of like go, go higher up, like the, the, the loops for the, for changing things are taking longer. You go from like, you know, like, um, weeks and months to (laughs) to months and years, depending on on the kind of organization you're in and and so on, Um, the rewards are really there. Um, I think at times there's a different kind of reward um, when you uh, make some code work uh, compared to seeing somebody who was in the wrong place and you managed to, you know, maybe in the wrong role or um, wrong, wrong behavior or 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 whatever, and you you're able to radically turn the situation around, taking a low performer or a medium performer um, and, and taking them, you know, to a really good place where other people really recognize the difference or being able to unlock the potential in somebody to, to go like um, the, ne- the next level. But it's um it's far more rewarding. Um, it's also rewarding when you can see that at an organizational level mm-hmm. where you can like really see the engagement move um, for a group of people um, and you can see the productivity increase uh, through that. So it, it, it happens, but it's just like it's just not the same. It's not the same time time timeline, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious, like, what was it like, so you mentioned that, like, you were headhunted for, you know, a CTO role, which means you were coming into mm-hmm. an organization where you did not originally set the culture. So mm-hmm. is there maybe a, a, a story you can share, maybe anonymize what you need to, but like, is there a story you can share about maybe some aspect that you did have to change? And maybe what, what was some of the things you did that maybe took a few months to take effect?
0: so there's definitely something this is a good question and um, and in this particular situation i, I couldn't change anything actually okay. about the people i couldn't right. change the people didn't have a budget to to make a radical changes it wasn't actually it was a very much of like a this company was a, a little bit struggling mm-hmm. and we needed to to to, to turn things around um, i think there was like a a couple um, things that we had to do as a cto you're an you're part of the executive team of a company, and you are not on your own. You have typically a chief product officer, mm-hmm. so you have like your pair, your your like partner that you have to actually um, that that partnership you have to make work, as well as your other peer relationships in the leadership team and and obviously working for the CEO. So there's one that's one aspect um, that we had to change. I had a an incredibly um, I, I don't know. I had a, a team that I, of managers that were all quite young and like first-time managers, mm-hmm. who are who were all awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say that unequivocally. I, I think they're all really great. They're still like some of the best people that I've I've worked with, but they were also first-time managers. Mm-hmm. And um, so some of the things that we changed, we we had to um, reorient uh, the teams to be more like aligned to our end customer personas, we had kind of, you know, we had to kind of like do a, a, hopefully people are, some people are familiar with like a Conway's law and the reverse Conway, (laughs) but we had to kind of change the organization uh, to be how we wanted it to be, um, to enact some of the changes. And so there was like a definitely like a a team orientation. And there were some people that were amazing people, but they were in the wrong place. Yep. uh, they were um, in in one case um, someone was managing people that probably was uh, needed to actually be a principal engineer and was just, just one of the best engineers I've ever worked with mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, getting getting strong technical people who really focus much more on their time on tech stuff and the people side is a little bit less interesting for them mm-hmm. um, getting them out of Managing people is actually sometimes the most freeing thing that you can do, and you can suddenly see a radical difference. Um, And then there were people that we who who were um, who had to promote into management who hadn't really had that experience, who were maybe not the the top performer, but they were excellent. They are excellent managers. Yeah. Um, So it's that kind of. Those are the kind of changes that you know over over like a eighteen month two year period, you you need to start to make in an organization to to reorientate people in um in, in a better configuration to have a better result for the company mm-hmm. um, and for the people who are in it
1: yeah I love that story uh, I've seen uh, Netflix even go so far as if you become a manager and then you decide you don't want to they literally throw you a party <laughs> like. To celebrate the fact that you're going back to being an IC engineer because they know it's so common. And and, and mm-hmm. while that may seem like the extreme case of how to handle it, I think it's like removing any stigma from that I think is actually really mm-hmm. important because there are a lot of people who get into management either for the wrong reasons and mm-hmm. they go, oh, this isn't what I thought I signed up for. Or they get conscripted. It's like... You know, mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if that engineer you were talking about, well, he's the strongest engineer and everybody respects them. So, like, of course, they should become a manager when really mm-hmm. it's like, nah, actually, you should look at their aptitude for actually being a manager, not yep. not the fact that they were a great IC necessarily. Like, yes, being successful at your individual role helps, mm-hmm. uh, but it shouldn't be the only vector. And it is one of the causes of why somebody might get asked to do the job and isn't a good fit. And you want to make it safe for them to go back to the thing they're really good at
0: exactly and there's a difference between management and leadership and and individual contributors absolutely like uh, that person was a, a definitely a leader <laughs> um, He is a leader and uh, someone that I admire a lot hmm. and actually also the other interesting thing is that people who've popped up into management and then then come back come come sideways into you know like I see leadership. Because they've had that management experience, they're typically a better individual contributor leader as well. Because they they understand a bit more what what's what's needed. Um, uh, so and and like, there's always a route back for people who've done that to go back into management later, maybe when they're when at a different time, different context, a different situation might be a good move for them again. So yeah, I think see these things kind of fluid. What,
1: um, I'm curious, was it a. Uh... Was it an easy conversation to suggest it to them? Were they open to it? Or was it actually a tough thing to kind of introduce them the idea of like, hey, what if we had you go back to being like, you know, an expert engineer that we go to for a lot of technical questions, but you don't have to do the people side anymore?
0: Um, I think the first conversation was not an easy conversation. And I think um, if your organization hasn't built a dual track career ladder where Technical leadership is recognised and like valued, you know, in in, in a in a, in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's seen as um, it's seen as a, a you know potential threat or loss of loss of power. Right. And and per- so you know people don't fear change; they fear like the the loss of control or loss of power mm-hmm. to themselves. Um, and um, that's why they resist change. And and I think um, in this situation, once we got past that, when we st- Talked about strengths, and there was like a recognition of the leadership, and he stayed in the leadership team uh, um, with with the with with the other the other people managers. Then it, I think it got a lot easier, and actually, um, you know, we we uh, you know, that, that yeah, it's just really for me, he was a really amazing success story.
1: That's great. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Mm. Um, mm. Now, in your career, you've risen a number of steps in the leadership ladder, and I think. Mm-hmm as much as going from IC to manager really is like a career change, Mm. each layer of management you go up also has a pretty steep learning curve. And so I'm curious as you've kind of risen, Mm. you know, what are maybe some of the biggest changes you notice, uh, that you kind of like had to navigate and maybe how did you, how did you deal with that at a different stage? So like starting with going from IC to manager, Mm. what were, what were maybe some, what was maybe one of the hardest things that you felt like you had to, to
0: learn at that level? I think like in the first, kind of that first step, having hard conversations mm-hmm. and doing it in a way that respects people, mm-hmm. at least I care a lot about respecting people. Totally. And uh, for me, um, when, when you care about people, but how do you convey like, you know, your performance is not, you know, it's not, it's not. Good, you know, like how do you do that? How do you yeah. deal with that? Um, that's super hard. Uh, that's that. The whole um, setting the right expectations for people, um, managing, pe- you know, like helping people with their performance. That first, that's super difficult. It's nobody prepares you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, nobody warns you like how difficult it is, and and like especially if you've been a peer. And like the same level as everybody else and then suddenly you're that team's manager. Yeah. Um, that's really hard. That's really, really hard.
1: What uh what helped you with that? Like that uh like those kind of like coming to an understanding of how to communicate that way and do some of this kind of like people oriented things, uh were there particular resources or things that helped you uh helped you kind of learn those skills or, or build some some of the right the right habits to start to do that well after
0: not really being familiar with it? Mm-hmm. You know, I will say that um, books, reading, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've been a long time uh, follower of, of actually the Lighthouse blog as well, and I, I want to say that I think that you have some of the best written content and blog content on on this distilled down. You know, taking taking some amazing books, many of which I've read, yeah, yeah. some of, some of which I read after you've recommended awesome. them. And, and I think that like, you've got to, you've got to, um, you've got to, you've got to be interested in this and you've got to invest time, your spare time. Mm-hmm. Your I, I read books on holiday yeah. and, and I read books about this kind of stuff on holiday. Um, so so reading, learning and then applying and, and making mistakes um <laughs> obviously with people saying the wrong thing. Yeah. Being being humble enough to go back in and saying, Look, I'm I'm really sorry, how can we figure this out? Um Um I've been fortunate um also that the companies that I worked at um invested a lot in training. Mm-hmm. Um and, and like there were like training programs for managers. Um I think like looking back at this the, someone said to me there's like you know 70% of of all your learning is by doing it on the job 20% is having a good manager or sorry or or a mentor or a coach or something and and 10% is like those training courses that you did <laughs> yeah. and i think it's really true like i i look back at the training courses and i probably have like a, one or two big takeaways in like 5 years later or 10 years later but like uh, the, the, the hands-on experience is definitely where I've, I've learned uh, the most. So for me, it's at 70 2010. Are you tired
1: of sending your managers to training that they get nothing out of? Do you find yourself panic checking email and Slack when you're supposed to be listening to that facilitator? We all know we should invest in the growth and development of our leaders, but all day seminars with PowerPoints and stale donuts are not cutting it in 2022. That's why we made Lighthouse Lessons. We've taken training and learning and given it a totally different approach. Instead of spending all day in a seminar, we send your managers actionable bite-sized lessons via email that take 20 minutes to review and give them ways to immediately apply them directly to their teams. We also give you a discussion agenda so you can meet with your managers and replace trust falls and role playing with actually talking with each other to build bonds, support each other, and talk about real leadership situations at your company. All this is available to you at a fraction of the cost of traditional trainers. So find out for yourself and sign up to learn about our programs. Managers have called more practical than my MBA on topics, including for new managers, for rising senior leaders, mastering remote management and coaching to drive great performance. Find them all at grouplessons.getlighthouse.com now. Awesome. That's great to hear. Um, and so then as you kind of rise in the organization, the 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 next step is you manage managers and so I'm mm-hmm. curious what was what was that like what were the biggest uh, kind of challenges and things you had to navigate shifting shifting too suddenly you're a little layer removed you know you may not if you have any ICs reporting to you they're probably very senior mm-hmm. and so now you have managers under you who are also kind of looking up to you and and you probably
0: are somewhere in the middle of the organization just a, like a kind of a meta thought and then I'll, I'll kind of answer the other part of it but I th- I do think. As you work more with people, because <laughs> like you go a little bit less on the tech side as you go, as you go a little bit higher up, um, maybe as a manager, you may be still involved in the tech uh, discussions, but as you're a manager manager, you're a bit more removed. Mm-hmm. So your your job is much more oriented around people. the The realization that I came to over time <laughs> was that in order for me to be successful, I needed to go on an inner journey about myself and mm-hmm. changing, changing things and bad behavior, uh, learned behavior. But uh, like we all have our patterns. We all have our strengths. We have our weaknesses um, and uh, that the journey for me on that level has also been there's lots of things I'll say about, you know, what the differences are. But I think like uh, looking at, at my my career arc, Partially it's about being a better person. Sure. And um and and that is definitely an important part of the change that you have to go. And otherwise I think like you know, there's a whole thing about, you know, there's other things like growth mindset and so on, but the growth mindset needs to apply to, to, to ourselves and how we act. Sure. Yeah. Sure.
1: Um so um thinking about that like uh what what was kind of helpful in like thinking about changing the system? Like so, if there's an issue, you can't just go directly and fix it. So, mm-hmm. so how did you how did you kind of have that mindset shift, or do you have an example story maybe of how it crystallized for you to like think about like, oh, I need to think about the system that caused this problem, not just not just mm-hmm. fix the problem immediately in front of me.
0: Yeah, so this is exactly it. So, um, I think as a as like when you're when you're um, when you're a manager, you're definitely like your goal is to make the team. You know, you make the team perform like it's not about your individual performance. That's like the big one of the big changes. But mm-hmm. um, you're still very close to things, so you see the work being done. Um, you're typically in uh, your team's day. You know, like if you're in engineering, you're in your te- team's. Uh, you're you're doing the daily up, You're you're in estimation. You're in the the planning meetings. You're you're you know you're in a lot of that kind of. Thing and you're very close to, to things and so you're kind of able to change like maybe how we work or you know it's it's you're very like close to the to the coal face um as you become a, a manager of manager um the system that you have to affect is it, it's it's bigger um and you can go and see uh you know you can go and see what's going on mm-hmm. um and you can see that maybe uh, oh my goodness we're spending a lot of time on on code reviews and we we you know it's slowing us down and probably don't need to do code reviews for everything mm-hmm. um and you can like at that point, uh, having, you know, because you do need to be close, you know, you do need to invest in time to see what's going on in work-wise and not just spend your time in meetings far away from people. Mm-hmm. But when you see that, you, you your first instinct, because you were a manager in a team before, is to, like, try and fix it, the thing, this the very specific thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've had to realize over time is that you need to take a... Yes, of course, you can say something or whatever, but you need to step back from that and go, well, what in the system is creating that? You know, how can I make a change that this is a symptom of something bigger? And how can I like make a change to the whole system and nudge it? Um, And even better, if you can um, elicit that change without being the one pushing the change. (laughs) Um, So there's like changes first, like uh, it depends on like the kind of organization that you're part of, but like ideally, you want to be the one, you don't want to be the one that's. Pushing every change on everybody, mm-hmm. you want to create a, 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 an environment where the change is actually coming from people, and you are you are enabling that. But it, it's almost like it's quite hard to get there, and you sometimes have to, have to use your authority to nudge it to that point. But um, yeah, you are thinking in systems as a manager of managers. Um, yeah, I, I just see it, you know, um, kind of like code, but. Much more complicated because they're people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's yeah. funny you mention that because, like, for me, uh, my career comes from product management. And mm. I think one of the best things that product management does to prepare you for management is the whole idea of influence, not control. <laughs> like, a product yes. manager really has very little control over anything around them, but they influence, they can potentially mm. influence just by everybody. And so when you use that for good, you, know, you can start to realize how something you do and how you approach something and how you have a conversation with someone else can bring out the best from them and mm-hmm. can bring about a change that you have a view across the organization to do. And so much like you were talking about thinking the systems because you're a programming background, I know for me as a product mm-hmm. manager, that influence was something that I picked up in my IC role that, that, that has helped as well for the same idea.
0: Yeah actually I kind of going back to that statement I made at the or you made in the intro like but it, I do believe like my uh, you know we're building something we're we're building a, what I hope is going to be a, is an awesome product and it, it, it but like for me I'm the product manager of this organization yeah. um and and um it's not my job to to be the brain that solves everything at the top of the tree yeah um it's my job to to figure out how to unlock that talent from other people mm-hmm. in in everywhere in more of a, a related network um, that's autonomously making those decisions and um, at least that's how I see it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And so um, let's go. We're going last step. We're going to the top of the tree. So when mm. you when you transition and suddenly you're, you're CTO and so there's layers below you. Mm. What was that mm. change like? What were what were maybe the biggest uh, shifts that you? recognized when you then started having an entire organization you had to be thinking about
0: so when you're like a manager in the middle in a big organization especially uh, you're still operating within like a structure that a lot of other people put in place Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, when you're uh, when you're when you're in a cto role um, especially in like where where i'm in a a cto of a scale-up at the moment Mm -hmm. um you're having to think about another dimension, uh, I think, like, well, multiple other dimensions, mm-hmm. um, because you're popping out of your, like, popping out of engineering, mm-hmm. and you're having to think about the holistic business. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's that aspect of it. And um, I think, yeah, it's just kind of like, a, it's kind of like a multiplication um, of the, the way you have to think about when you're a manager of managers, because you can, there's bits of a bigger organization that you can't change, you know? Um, You probably can't change the performance review process. (laughs) You probably can't change the budgeting process. You can't, (laughs) you can't change like what, like the strategic direction of the organization is. Right. Um, So you, but you can change lots. You can create this amazing bubble for your people. But uh, when you're, you know, like that can be like the, a really cool bubble for, for, for that group of people. Um, but when you're a CTO or, in, or in, the, in kind of like in that leadership position, it's, in it's, um, it everything you do affects the whole company. Yeah, um, it's, it's different, at, even if it's smaller. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most interesting pieces of advice I remember I heard early in my career when I worked at a startup that had a, uh, a new CEO come in. Uh, you know, he, he took, he took everybody out for coffee individually and was, you know, just trying to get to know like, who are these people and, and, and what makes them tick and things like that. Um, but you know, I was pretty young and green, so I didn't even know, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I had no problem just asking him like direct questions and stuff. And one of the things he said that as now I've realized and appreciated more was he was like, look. If you're expecting me to come in and fix everything right away, that's just not going to happen. Like, mm-hmm. it's much more important for me to get to know everybody and observe how things work first before making any dramatic changes. And I want to make sure that people like support yeah. the changes before I make them. And I had no idea how wise mm-hmm. those were until I saw someone who tried to just come in and rock the boat on day one and how badly that went. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People who do that, um, uh, they they either bounce out really quick yeah. or like other people bounce out. And, Correct. Uh, one of the sad things is usually the good people leave at at, at those moments. Yeah.
1: yeah. The only times I've seen it yeah. kind of quote unquote work out has been whenever that basically leads to that new senior executive uh, is basically just wants to bring in their people and so has no problem. Mm-hmm losing yeah. most of the current staff because they're like, nah, I'm just going to bring in my people and they're going to solve this problem. But that's probably it, not the best way. So if you are inheriting a team yeah. <laughs> realize the best thing you can do is listen, um, and mm-hmm. then start to, you know, strategically bring in some of the things, you know, work. Uh, but don't think on day one, you're going to start putting your stamp on and just say, Hey, this is how we should do it now.
0: Yeah. I, I think, um, this is, that's really interesting, but it's so true. And, um, this is my second time being a CTO now, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that I consciously realize, realized and put as part of my like onboarding plan was I had to get to know and learn everything. I had to see how you know people are working and who the people are and all these things. But and I was I knew for sure there would be many things I wanted to change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, the first thing that I actually tr- tried to do, and it took a couple of months to do it, uh, was to put in place kind of like a mechanism for change to happen mm-hmm. that was uh, bottom up. Um, and I think that's that was like really that was a learning, it was definitely doing things based on my previous experiences and like going, OK, what, how do I because I feel like if you want to change an organization, the way that you change them, needs to be consistent with the way that you want them to be. So if you want a, an organization that's um, bottoms up and, and you're facilitating people to be autonomous and, and thinking on their own, making decisions autonomously, then the change mechanism needs to be f- and support that and facilitate that. Um, and I'm a big fan of uh, open spaces and open, there's something called open space technology. It's a kind of a, a really kind of un, un-conference way of um, of, of organizing yourself. In fact, my first experience of that was in Cameroon oh, um, very cool. because we started something called bar camps and bar camps are basically an unconference where we mm-hmm. say, we're all going to get together and on the day we're going to decide who you're going to come with your topics yep. and we're going to like figure it out, you know? <laughs> and so that was my, you know, like now I'm using that same mechanism. We have a quarterly all hands where, um, We've done it once, face to face, and then we, <laughs> oh Micron came, so we've had to like do it like virtually. Yeah. But we basically run our, we do two days every quarter, and we have this kind of um, uh, open space uh, event where where we basically um, people bring their own topics and changes come out of that, and and it it is really interesting because the the meeting we had in October. Took, there were a lot of changes, and we, we're only now starting to see the benefits of that. And we're in February, mm-hmm. um, and the the meeting that we had a, a few weeks ago in January is probably going to now some of those changes are going to roll forward into the next over the next six months. So, um, but I think it's much more powerful because you bring people with you, um, or actually other people bring people <laughs> <Yep>. for you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I get very excited about it. But I think that is a very important. Um, thing that you need to do at that kind of when you're like, a, um, in a very senior position, you mm-hmm. need to have that mechanism in place can't come from you.
1: Yeah, you create the structure in the environment. But ultimately, the ideas are bubbling up from your team. So that's great. Yeah. Um, I'll make sure to follow, follow up with Jeremy to get a link to a good ec- explainer of that in case you want to try that with your organization.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I'm definitely highly recommend it. Um, yeah,
1: cool. So what what have you learned now like looking back at your career you know i think i've certainly met my share of engineers like you know there's kind of two tracks like there's the engineers who know i just want to code for as long as i can possibly code Mm and I love it. And then there are other ones that are like, no, like my dream is to be a CTO one day. Like I I love the Mm -hmm. idea of what I could get to do there. So, you know, what advice would you have for someone just starting out on a similar path that thinks they want to get there? Like, I think if, if you've been listening through the rest of the story, you can see how different pieces of your, of Jeremy's experience Mm -hmm. actually have helped him uh, be a better CTO today. So I'm curious, Jeremy, what advice you would have for people who think they want to get there eventually, but like, you know, they're not trying to beat the door down and be a CTO tomorrow. So they appreciate the idea of maybe having some steps in the journey.
0: No matter like which way, and I've taken a very zigzag way, and we didn't really talk about it, but I spent a bit of time in sales, even mm-hmm. um, as, as in, you know, I like did pre-sales, and I thought I'll, I wanted to like, pop out of that and stop managing people, and just I spent two years as a pure salesperson. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think you need to have done like exactly my steps. Everyone's got their own path. But I, I do think that one of the things that's really important, um actually any tech role and you can practice this as a as a individual contributor and engineer is getting close to users, getting close to the business, mm-hmm. having empathy, don't just be in the corner coding. Like um you need to I think like uh I, we talked a lot about the, the personal journey and, and the inner journey, but from a, like a the skills that will serve you, that will get you promoted is um, solve problems, yep. but you know, like don't just solve like your problems, like in, in a corner, yeah. go and solve other people's problems, you know, make their lives better, make the user's lives better. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't wait for a product manager to come and give you an amazing Figma design, <laughs> or you know that he's like, or, or she is done, you know, or you know in you know like testing with the UX designer all on their own with with a with the user, or you know go and go and be part of that because um, that's the first experience of like building this empathy, and then um, as you get like more senior, you're you have peers in different parts of the company that you work at go and build those bridges, solve their problem, make sure that your team and is playing its part in, 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 in tech to, to, to solve those parts. Um, because I think people see that and they they go, oh, I want this person doing something more bigger, you know. Um, so for me, that, that's definitely important. So one of my, I could talk more about that, <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> I, I think that's pr- if I could just say one thing yeah. that would be that would be it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so so one of the things that I think is always
1: interesting is is like lessons you learn, uh, the hard way. And so mm. so like an example with Lighthouse is we were building the Microsoft Teams integration. Uh, we had a mm. Slack bot and people loved it. And so as Microsoft Teams started to take off a couple years ago people were banging down our door being like, hey, that Slack bot looks really cool. You know, it'd be great is if we had that in Microsoft Teams. And so on the surface, it was like, oh yeah, of course, let's just do it. And then we actually got into the project and it was a nightmare. Uh, Turns out working Mm. with Microsoft's APIs is not fun. And the way in which they architected Microsoft Teams is nothing like Slack. Uh, from mm-hmm. a, from an ease of building or anything perspective, and so it became one of those torturous, never ending projects. Um, and wouldn't you know, with all that progress stalling out and all the frustrations that happened with that, that was beyond that engineer's control. An otherwise very happy team member uh, quit on us, and mm-hmm. that was a very sobering moment because I write book, I, mean, I write I write content on leadership and management mm-hmm. constantly, and here we are losing an employee to burnout. <laughs> Um, and so that was a very sobering moment for us to realize like how important it Mm -hmm. is to, uh, understand the size of the project, but then also just respect the fact that when a project's stalling out, you need to be very careful about how your team members feeling about it and how it affects their, their morale. And so I'm curious if you Mm -hmm. have maybe one story that comes to mind that you you wouldn't mind sharing about something you learned the hard way as a leader.
0: So many, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, you know like uh, there's been times where there's been really great people that people really like in mm-hmm. the team but they're not like, you know, they they're not performing well. Um there's um there there's this there's, there's been like I, I I think like one one that 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 sticks a little bit with me is Dealing with someone who's very good, but is very bad for everybody around.
1: <laughs> so sort of a toxic, um, toxic culturally person.
0: T- t- just very toxic. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and you know, like I, I, I try and do this in this, so as, as a, I, I, you know, I always want to be really careful that I don't like have it come back to people in, in, in public things like this, but sure. basically they were... They were they were a very strong uh, tech lead, mm-hmm. and um, at the same time, they 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 created this extremely negative um, environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of backbiting, undercutting um, other people, um, undermining uh, the engineering manager, mm-hmm. um, and and I saw this really early on, and I think like um, we all want. To find a way to help the be- help people be their best, yep. and and it's definitely like one of my strengths is like I can see the potential of people, mm-hmm. and I can see how I could like maybe you know nudge them, and and not everybody actually responds to that, and and um, you need to have a cutoff off point um, where you say okay, this I've done enough here, like we need to stop, and I think that one. Um, I, I let it drag on for too long. In in the end how I dealt with it was he he, he was trying to I, I redrew the role. I, I was very clear and actually moved him apart. There was like some it's like a school school playgrounds where yeah. you have like a couple people that like really group together. Yeah. So I split them apart into different teams
1: mm-hmm.
0: and some kind of a bit more isolation and um changed the manager mm-hmm. and um he he left, you know. He he saw um, that, that that you know there was there was a writing on the wall, but like that that dragged on for too long, and it created a, too much of a toxic environment um, in the team. And to be honest, there's been a couple people like that I've 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 worked with, and I don't think it's ever easy. So you can probably always beat yourself up about it. Yeah. Um, the worst thing about that situation is you don't spend enough time with the really good people who also need your time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, that's definitely one, one lesson where I wish, I, I wish I'd taken action earlier. Um, yeah. And, and and how did that affect um,
1: the team? Like, what was the consequences of waiting too long? Like, was it did it hurt the culture of the team? Did did anybody good quit on you or anything like that? Because because of working with that person.
0: Um, thankfully we didn't lose anyone else. Okay. Um, but. It basically made that team highly unproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, it also um, that person because they were kind of like so good, everything relied on them. They were like the bottleneck, um, so like productivity was impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the morale uh, there were there was there was someone else who did who flourished when we moved them into another team. And actually was turned out to be a really strong contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, once we got them out of that environment, someone who we thought may also be a low performer, wasn't the case. They just changed, changed their environment. You, it's like putting a plant in the wrong part of your garden and, and it's withering and you move it and suddenly it's, it grows, you know. And I think part of the role is gardening. It's like making sure that you've got your plants in the right place mm-hmm. um, and it give each plant its specific care regime. Um, yep. um, people, are, people are a bit like that too.
1: Yeah, um, I know uh, Robert Sutton, I believe, has a book uh, called the, the No Asshole Rule. And in that book, he actually— I didn't want to say that word. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll bleep it. But, um, but uh, <laughs> actually— funny aside we'll edit this out but i literally uh i talked about that book in one of our lighthouse lessons and we literally ran into a company's content filter last week because of it and i was like <laughs> uh not what i meant And i'm like what do i do it's the book it's the book that's causing yeah. the sensor to go off um but anyways as an aside we'll leave it out but that book is fantastic because it talks about that data exactly what you're talking about which i think people underappreciate. Um, Which is that it turns out that when you look at the metrics while the person's there, it looks like you're heavily reliant on them and you will not make it. Mm. But what's great is he actually has assembled the research that shows over and over again, they were like, take that person off the team. And they did it with like salespeople and stuff where it was very easy to Mm. measure it. And it turns out everybody else's performance rises so much that Mm -hmm. even someone who's like a top 1% performer, you're better off. Um, letting them go and the rest of the team will actually rise to fill in the gap with them because they actually depress everybody else more than the uh, exponential outcome that they bring because they're such uh, they seem like such a high performer and I think that's a Mm counterintuitive thing that's hard to understand either until you see it or you read it in a book like that where they just hit you with so much data that you're like Mm -hmm. well I can't imagine this guy would go to the trouble of writing this book and like assembling all this research and it's fake there's Mm -hmm. probably something to this.
0: And yes, I, I mean that. I've read that book, yeah. and I, um, I, I, I think it's so true. Um, it's, it's. There, there was another person in my career who, who left. Yeah, who, who, um, and we didn't manage them out. I, and I was, I was his manager, yeah. and we didn't manage them out. And we had that productivity lift, and we always thought that they were like indispensable. Um, and um, I've realized that actually there's no person that's indispensable. And if there's something wrong with the system, if you create teams where you have to rely on, on, on people and and it, 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 I think I've also realized that I am never indispensable. <laughs> I've always been replaced. Yeah. And I think I'm kind of good, but I'm actually not. Good. Or at least... Um, yeah, I, I just think that you you shouldn't treat people like we just need this one person unless they've got some kind of power over the organization and um, and, and that kind of thing. I have actually encountered one guy, yeah. who um, on on a on a hundred person project was the only person that knew uh, uh, we were replacing a mainframe system, and he was the only one that knew COBOL. <laughs> and more importantly, yeah. but the COBOL you can maybe find someone else, but. He knew the assembly language, which some of the mainframe uh, business rules were written in, yeah. and so we needed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that was, I think, like the most irreplaceable person I've ever met. And I think we could have found another contractor; would just had to increase the day rate. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. You certainly, you certainly run into some of that with some
1: of those old languages like Fortran and Cobalt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think the the big question then to bring it full circle as we're thinking about this career journey that people have, you know, what do you think makes someone uh, a good C- CTO? If someone wants to do this, what qualities should they develop,
0: or what qualities should they be looking for? Mm-hmm. I think that's the um, the million dollar question, yeah, <laughs> um, or maybe it's the billion dollar question, yeah. um, You know, like it depends on the stage of the company. Um, it depends on the kind of organisation uh, that you're part of, mm-hmm. because I think there's different kinds of CTO, um, and sometimes they actually form like a relay race um, mm-hmm. in like in the startup land for sure yeah. between uh, the different kinds. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Simon Wardley's uh, pioneers, settlers, and town planners—a um, way of way of thinking about like people and organisations.
1: I am not, but it's going on the book list now. This sounds great. Uh, we'll make sure to put it in the show notes. So,
0: so yeah, tell us about it. Yeah. So he has this concept where um, you have different groups of people at different stages, um, very much like basically exploring. Um, you know, if you think about pioneering, going into the unknown, discovering something for the first time, surviving in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that pioneering role is that. That first CTO of a startup that has an idea mm-hmm. and that hasn't found product market fit, yeah. and you need to build something, <laughs> and um, <Yes. laughs> you need to get it out the door. It's very practical. It's um, we don't really care about managing people at that stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might only be you and one other person or a few people, mm-hmm. um, and and that's that's a very different CTO skill. Yeah, um, that is like I think a, an exceptional tech lead. Who's very uh, pragmatic and practical, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you, you know, as a product person, you probably know. <laughs> I and mean, as I have someone who's built their own product, you know what that stage is like, yes. and the kind of skills you need. right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely, yes. It is a very specific set of skills, especially to have that kind of engineer who can, who can have that conversation with you. Like I loved how much Jeremy, like my product manager side, is like, man, I love the story of like uh, <laughs> empathizing with the customer because the best engineers universally that i've worked with Mm -hmm. have always wanted to truly understand the customer you know even if Mm -hmm. it's just they want to download for me every once in a while they still they care enough to really understand not just hey i'm coding up this thing but like why and what is the outcome is like super important to Mm -hmm. them and so certainly you know technical co-founder first first cto is definitely somebody who you want to have bring that empathy but then also like you said that pragmatism is so important Mm -hmm. like it you know it's like one of the things i love about my business partner eddie who's our head of engineering he he is very very pragmatic he's like look if you can Mm -hmm. show me how this is going to help customers and make money we'll figure it out um as Mm -hmm. opposed to being like a technical purist or um or 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 not understanding how the dynamics of a market may change
0: exactly i mean Hopefully you can build something and be a technical purist. But <laughs> typically uh, there's trade-offs and yes. uh, you have to know that, you know, which ones to make. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes uh, the really great ones can build a foundation that can be actually built on um, for like literally um Dozens of years mm-hmm. afterwards, that core of the product is actually really not changing that much—the big idea and the simplification that they apply to a business problem. Um, but it's it's a very it's 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 a little. I think that early stage is very um, it's not very people oriented in some ways. It's more product uh, oriented. Mm-hmm. That people are important, and they need to be able to identify the right engineers to to work alongside. Um, and then there's like a leap. I think as you go to kind of after product market fit, when a business is starting to, to grow to make money, mm-hmm. um, you, depending on like what kind of organization, then there's, you, you get above 20 people in yeah. tech and that role and um, the way that that pioneer uh, CTO role um, operated has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they become like a manager or a manager of managers, hopefully. Are you talking about 20 in 20, the
1: engineering department or 20 in the whole company?
0: 20 in the engineering okay, cool. department. Thanks. Yeah, because, like, I think you can, like, on the shoestring and you can get by um, if things are dynamic, maybe in the early stage with, like, 20 people with, that not, with not a lot of management because it's typically a small company. And probably in, if it's a tech company, like, engineering is probably at least a significant part of, like, the number of people. And it's, it's the kind of, it's like a, you can get everyone in a room or often in maybe pre-COVID, but all those people, have been in a room, sitting in a room, and and so communication is different, and and so on. Um, but then you start to you're starting to scale, and um, I think that's where you you need um, different skills. You need, and some of those CTOs have like scaled. Um, yep. You know, they've scaled themselves. They've scaled. They've they've grown. They've had the right coaching and the right right learning. Um, but there's this phase where um, it's really funny when you reach product market fit because. Sometimes the product cannot change, but there's so much needs to happen under the covers for that product to actually work as it starts to scale. Mm -hmm. And um, for like the users, they don't maybe see a difference, but like there's like major overhauls being done to be able to actually continue to do what you do. Um, And those people are more like what Simon Wardley calls the settlers. And I I think there's a really good um, quote um, about settlers, which is like apt for this. So he says, you know, For each role, when he describes it, he says, you know, pioneers are brilliant people. And in this case, he says, settlers are brilliant people. They can turn a half-baked thing into something useful for a larger audience. They build trust. They build understanding. They learn and refine the concept. They make the possible future actually happen. They turn a prototype into a product, make it manufacturable, listen to customers, and turn it profitable. And it's a different skill set. It's like Mm -hmm. starting to put some structure around uh, things, starting to... um, to hire those really great managers, engineering managers, um, changing processes. There's there's a, there's a lot more in in that role. Um, often, if you come in into that environment as a CTO, uh, it feels like you've just appeared in the Wild West, <laughs> and uh, <Yeah. laughs> you you need to kind of like bring some order. And you're the sheriff, the new sheriff in town. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's like a certain phase. And those those that you know that those settlers that are kind of going from like that early small team to, you know, you might be doubling, tripling going over going over 100 people Mm -hmm. in that kind of settling phase. Sure. Um, Yeah,
1: Uh, no, that makes a lot of sense. That transition is, you know, the interesting thing about it is like, it's not just the engineering team that's going through that transition, right? Like all Mm -hmm. the departments are going to be experiencing that and probably experiencing a different Mm -hmm kind of different stages and levels of strain depending on, Mm. you know, what's ahead of the other, you know, Mm. um, is sales way out in front. Now engineering Mm -hmm. is the bottleneck trying to build all the things sales is selling or, or is, um, is engineering like building something that's going really well. And now the sales team needs to scale up because, uh, you know, too many people are beating on the door for it. There's, Mm -hmm. there's like the whole organization is going through that growing pain simultaneously.
0: Exactly. And you're kind of like, you know your your vision, um you know, like the 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 pioneer CTO is probably very like deep in the product, and yep I'm um, hopefully doing some support and a bit of pitching, but um, yeah, typically they're more like. In the weeds and then the settlers there they're actually kind of looking wider around the organization then you have like the kind of like the the, the the big company cto the or like a you know engineering leader in a very very big organization and they're kind of like the town planner you know yeah. <laughs> they're industrializing everything they're making it all bulletproof they're they're di- like trying to find a way to do economies of scale mm-hmm. and you know they're, they're just they're thinking on a different um a, a different level again so you kind of like have these like these, these levels. And I, I've actually worked, um, and been mentored by a town planner CTO and, nice. um, the kind of advice you get from that is totally different, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, than from like, like the, the, the people in the other, other end of the scale. And, um, yeah, I find it really fascinating. I have never been at that level where you've got like hundreds and hundreds of people, mm-hmm. uh, in an organization. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very different, uh, different set. So what makes someone a good CTO? <laughs> I think it really depends. Um, it's hard to, to kind of like zero in on 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 like on on one thing in general. Sure. Uh, um, depends on the context.
1: Absolutely, that makes sense. And so, what would make someone uh, who otherwise is a great engineer not a good fit mm. as a CTO? What a what is maybe a warning sign they should think? You know, maybe I don't want to head down this path. Like maybe maybe I should look at like you said some of those companies where they do have mm. the respected parallel
0: uh, leadership chart. If you don't, if you don't like working with people, yeah. if you uh, don't like a lot of meetings, at least I mean, most of the places I've worked at, meetings is definitely part of it. If you don't like those things, mm-hmm. um, if managing peer relationships in other departments um, it frustrates you. Um, if you feel, if you hate politics, I'm not saying that poli- like politics is never good, mm-hmm. um, but dealing with difficult topics with peers in other departments, like, you know, the sales leader comes to you and says that we need this in the product. Uh, um, Or, you know, you've got like a lot of bugs and it's causing major pain in customer support. Um, If you don't want to deal with those things, um, if you don't want to like have to go outside of like actually the pure uh, tech um, and to solve problems that affect other parts of the organization, it's probably not the right um, fit for you. I think that that's, um, yeah, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, we like to end mm. every episode coming full circle and, mm. and talking about what are the actual things someone can take away. So this has been an amazing mm. conversation. I think anyone who's interested in kind of rising in the leadership levels can can take a lot from your journey. And so mm. what we want to do is think about what are the couple of things that somebody could do today starting to think about like, hey, they know they want to be on that path. They know it's going to take mm. them many years to get there. So what are maybe some of the things they could start doing today mm. that would help them uh, put to practice some things we've talked about to be a better and more effective
0: leader? Um, yeah. Would it, it you go to the from the airy fairy to the uh, to the the, the nitty gritty hands on like what can I apply today yeah, to yeah. you know take away from here? Yeah. Um, I think probably if you're listening to this, you probably do care a lot about people, yeah. but it does start there for me. Um, and uh, you need to deeply care about people, um, but th- that's not really a tactic. Uh, it's just kind of the kind of prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like. Uh, we talked about the feedback loops earlier Mm -hmm. and I think, uh, the one-on-one is the cadence of the feedback loop that you can start to build over time. And I think it's like, um, I think the one-on-one is like the ultimate tactic. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know if it's like, it's just like, if you're not doing it, if they're not high quality, um, you're probably not being as, as effective as you could be. And if you're talking about like, um, someone's work and it's a status update yeah. um, you're not having a good one-on-one and so um that's your that's your feedback loop and that's your like that's your the number one meeting with each person mm-hmm. and then i think it's um everything um comes down to clarity of communication mm-hmm. um when you have uh, someone who's not performing it's probably because you haven't done a good enough job explaining what is expected of them mm-hmm. to achieve in their role. And so it's communication and like the number of times that I've messed up by just not providing enough clarity of what someone's role is. Um, so it's communication. Um, communication is really interesting because it's about repetition um, using different formats. Um, that's actually why I'm one of the uh, a big fan of, of Lighthouse because uh, you're in the one on one. You kind of talk but you take notes (laughs) and you send an email and afterwards, like, it's like, it's a really like, um, you, you don't just do it. Um, you don't just have a conversation and so that changing the formats, Mm -hmm. um, you need to use, uh, you need to repeat. I think uh, I've heard it said sometimes, somewhere like three times. I think it's more like, Depends on the size of the organization, but probably five times in five different formats. Because <laughs> I've heard it says three times in three different ways. <laughs> I've heard, <laughs> I've heard like that. that basically you,
1: so we'll put it, we have a post called the power about the power of repetition. And it's really just mm-hmm. a post about all the different ways to do it and the research yeah. behind it. But basically the, the the rule of thumb is it's not actually a number. It's you repeat it until you hear that your team say it without you prompting it. Because that's when you know they've really ingrained it and they truly understand it.
0: Exactly. In fact, actually this is really one of a funny thing. So um, I realized that the change I was making in uh, one of my previous companies where I was, I, I worked as I was a, I was a CTO, and I, I realized that it, it was working because some of the catchphrases that I was using mm-hmm. started coming back to me. Um, and I was like, okay, now now people get it and oh my goodness, it's been nine months. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So repetition, and you're right, when you hear it coming back, when you see it, the the behavior changing, then you realize that and and sort of like um, this is a tactic that's applicable no matter what level of an organization you're in because um, the more senior you are, the more you feel like you're basically just repeating the same thing for for six months (laughs) and you're not saying anything different. So patience, Um, patience goes with the repetition. Probably not really a tactic, but yes, patience is a virtue that you need. Yeah, um, and so simplicity in that communication, uh, you know, like, um, and 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 this is really interesting in the world of Slack, mm-hmm. emojis using emojis to reinforce certain kinds of things, whether it's like rewarding good behavior, uh, like making like making a funny moment of like um, something that you are trying to avoid, um, you know, like maybe it's how you handle incidents, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Or or something else, but like using the power of emojis is actually, I mean, some people hate them, but (laughs) it's how people are, people use uh, Slack and emojis a lot. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think you can use that as well uh, as like kind of like a trademark. So I have like a little, um, the rocket emoji I use a lot for when something like little wins and things are going in the right direction and we're making little progress on, on like, um, on like something that we've been repeating a lot. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah
1: it's funny our head of engineering eddie one of the first things he actually brought when he joined the team a few years ago was uh the party parrot emoji pack and (laughs) and it turns out that like i i don't know party parrot works and like there are a lot Mm -hmm. of different versions of party parrot like there's sad party parrot where it's crying And like, there's a really fast party pair, which when we do upgrades, everybody is. So like, actually I'm, I'm a full believer in those, um, especially when you can Mm. have them like fit into different people's personalities. And so, uh, actually I think a really great, uh, thing that you can do today is take a look at your team and see what emojis maybe your team's already using that you can pick up Mm. or, or something you can start kind of branding as, as an emoji you use and people know what it means when you use it. Um, Mm. I know for me, one of the most frustrating things I used to have was when I had managers who didn't acknowledge anything. And so I literally Mm -hmm. had to start saying like, Hey, can I at least get like an eyeball emoji on that? So like, I know that you saw it or something, um, Mm -hmm. but the best managers would, would acknowledge it in some ways. And sometimes that's like an animated GIF, like that, you know, Mm -hmm. showing lots of excitement or something or applause. And other times, even just like you said, a rocket or a party parrot, Mm -hmm. uh, can, uh, can make a big difference.
0: You know it sticks when your former team asked you, so um does everyone know that your favorite emoji is a rocket now <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and I, I think like um this is, this is really important uh the I think the other tactic is to thank people and to do it often and um anytime you see something that you really look for the small wins mm-hmm. look for the look for you know um we have like a high five uh channel in 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 the company or I, I work now mm-hmm. and um be be one of the top posters yeah <laughs> you know like don't don't be the per- don't don't just give one or two um but and, and and like it doesn't mean that you're like when you have someone who's not doing great and you give them a high five for something it doesn't mean you shouldn't you you should definitely do that because it's those little nudges where they say oh because people, you, I think you should link to another blog post that you have about, like, um, about this in particular. Yeah. But focusing on people's negative behavior really n- doesn't move the needle much. Mm-hmm. But when you see a little glimmer of the right behavior and you jump on that, yeah, and you do it publicly and you thank people, I think it's really powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, mm. No, that's a very, that's a very good one and good point. And uh, I think that mm. actually also is an extension of the emojis because. I think what people don't realize is, uh, once you're in a position of leadership, your approval matters a lot to people. And Mm. so even Mm. small gestures actually can mean a lot more to people. So I guess kind of, uh, um. Uh, Bringing it full circle, I think the three pieces of advice we have here is embrace repetition. Think about things you're trying to establish with your team and company right now. And think about different ways that you can repeat yourself. We'll link in the show notes to specific posts. that will give you more ideas Mm -hmm. on the idea of repeating yourself more to have good ideas sink in. Uh, Number two is use your one-on-ones effectively so you should be meeting with your team every week or two um and you want to use that as a Mm -hmm. feedback loop so if there are things you are working on them you know the saying is praise in public and give feedback privately if you have things you need to work on with someone that's what you should use your one-on-ones for Mm -hmm. that and like career and getting feedback from them and things like that and then the third one is um thank people and do it often um whether your company Mm -hmm. already has a high five channel or something like that where you can praise stuff if you don't Create, create something for yourself, whether that be an email you send out to the team, it's something you do in Slack, something you do at the start of a weekly team meeting. However you do it, um, start looking for ways to praise some small wins. Like Literally, I think of all the three things, the one you could do literally today is come up with at least one person on your team that you could recognize for doing one thing you really liked and tell them what it was and why you liked it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Please do it. <laughs> it'll, it'll change their day or their week. Yeah.
1: Great. Well, Jeremy, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate you joining us today and we're very excited, uh, to get this out to, to everybody to, to listen. Um, how can people follow you? Do you have a blog or anything people can follow or do you have social media people should check out?
0: I do. <laughs> um, I, I don't really, um, Post a, a lot, okay. um, but yeah, you, you can check me out on uh, on on uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter or or my blog. Um, you can subscribe and get an email update, and uh, once in a blue moon, I will I will write write something on there. <laughs> so cool!
1: Yeah, well, we'll post a link to all of his so- socials mm-hmm. in our show notes, so you can find them. And mm-hmm. uh, thank you for joining us. This has been uh, creating high performing teams, and so we'll see you next time.